turn with me to Galatians. I want to kind of follow up what I began on Wednesday night. Uh, I was kind of shared, uh, encourage you to go back if you have a chance and listen to that because it's a good introduction uh, to what I want to share this morning. But uh, this kind of came about providentially for me and as I was thinking about the last two Sundays uh, where I've been preaching in regards to our union with Christ. And it just really set my mind to begin to explore that all that's all that is a fruit of that union, uh, and it's just really gotten expansive, uh, and my heart was drawn to Galatians when I thought about the fruit of the Spirit, and that's kind of what I spoke on uh, Wednesday night. Uh, but the verse I want to look at this morning is in chapter 5, verse 25, particularly as an introductory verse. We will be looking <clears throat> at other verses there, uh, but I think it's key, and one of the reasons I think is because I've heard the fruit of the Spirit used in the sense of uh, we identify someone uh, maybe who professes to be a Christian as their patient. And, and I, we, maybe that's true or they're gentle uh, or they're one loving. So they, we, we list these qualities, fruit of the Spirit's out, and we cite those as sort of evidence that this person is a Christian. They're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And, and, and I'll... I wonder if we disconnect those and segregate those out and we assign them one by one. He's gentle and maybe patient, but he's not necessarily faithful. I wouldn't call him faithful and I wouldn't call him uh, self-controlled all the time. Uh, I don't know that I would call him loving or maybe not even goodness, but patient, yeah, yeah, he's that one. And I think we do a devastating, uh, a devastating, devastates this passage of Scripture. And the Lord has really brought the home to me this week, the continuity and the maybe even, I don't want to say codependency, but the correlation between these gifts of the Spirit. Uh, Galatians 5.25 really piqued my interest when it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Uh, so the new birth is brought about by the Spirit, John 3.5 Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we are literally, as Christians, we live by the Spirit. There's no getting around that. And Jesus in that same passage says that that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit, and that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So literally, Paul is acknowledging there, I think, our new birth. We are brought to life by the Spirit. So then, he says, walk by the Spirit. And to me, that, that really, really comes to bear in the life of the Christian. You are, you are saved by grace through faith. You are brought to this new life by the Spirit. And having rejoiced in this salvation, out of sheer gratitude and the joy of the moment, you set all of your strengths now to walking in obedience. And that that manifests itself a lot of times in you are live by the Spirit, but you walk by the power of the flesh. We bring to bear all that is flesh and exert all of our strength and discipline in living a godly life. And it seems to me like that's what Paul is pushing back against. 
This idea of introducing law commingled with grace as I shared Wednesday night. They were pressing these new believers to be circumcised as though somehow that would accompany now this justification and even sanctification. And Paul is pushing back hard because it undermines the very source of their sanctification. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Notice in Ephesians 2, while you've got your Bible open, mine opens to Ephesians chapter 1, but I shared this Wednesday night. But not only is our new birth by the Spirit, but we were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. He is, he is present in the life of the believer as a earnest or the down payment, as it were, of our inheritance, but his presence here seals us in Christ. So we are joined to Christ, sealed there by the Holy Spirit. So if we live by the Spirit, he's saying, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us conduct our lives by the Spirit. We don't get newborn, we don't get born again by the Spirit and then shift to some other means by which we walk or live the Christian life. And that's exactly what he's pressing on. In fact, in chapter 3 of Galatians, speaking specifically of justification here, but I think you could extend it to sanctification. But he says, this is one thing, he says, you foolish Galatian, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing, he says, I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? All the way back to chapter 1, he speaks to them, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which he goes on to say is not really a different gospel. There is no other gospel. That's not a gospel at all if you're departing. And so all these together. And then I shared Wednesday night how Jesus, I'm rooting this in Jesus, in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, and then also in 8. But Jesus makes the case there that he is the true vine and we are the branches. And so we are rooted now, sealed into the true vine where the life of Christ is, where God is. We are sealed in this union with Christ by the Spirit, whereby the fruits of the Christian life are produced from the life of Christ himself. Not by your exerting effort, not by your self-discipline, not by your personal resolve. All those things have their place in our devotion and commitment to Christ. But the fruitfulness is born, is manifested. It is Christ's fruitfulness born in our lives. He's the, he's the vine, we're the branches. That's so important to get in this passage. I wrote this when I was thinking through this. So then, taking all those passages together... When we get to Galatians 5.22 and Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, this fruit then must be understood as having been born in the believer's life as a result of his union with Christ. More than this, since in this union Christ is the true vine and we are branches abiding in him, then the fruit born in our lives should have the character and quality of the fruit that was evident in the life of Christ. In other words, 
Each of the characteristics noticed, no, noted in Galatians 5, 22-23 are distinguished by what I call a divine quality and origin. That's huge for me. Because that, that, that immediately tells me that it is not my prerogative as a Christian to, to insert these things, manufacture these in my life by my own definition. If I am grounded in Christ sealed by the Holy Spirit, then the fruits being born from that are flowing from the very life of Christ. Therefore, when he says the, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, then the love evident in the life of Christ is defining of the love to be evident in my life as a fruit of the Spirit. You see the difference? In other words, my life now as a Christian, if I'm living in Christ and by the Spirit, becomes a conduit in which the life of Christ, His love, and all down through this list are, are being born in my life as a result of my being joined to Him. That's why it's so dangerous to say, that's why Paul, I think, challenges them. If, we're, if we live by the Spirit, then also walk by the Spirit. Don't, don't live by the Spirit and then walk by the power of your flesh, sanctified by your having been chosen to life. It's not, it's not enough that out of gratitude we manufacture these things in our life. They must be, to be spiritual fruit as defined here, they must be being born from Christ's life Himself. So it's the, it is a divine quality of these fruit in the Christian life that distinguishes us from, from lesser manifestations of these in the world. I was thinking to myself that I grew, under, grew up under a, a lot of Buddhist influence. And, and I was thinking to myself, the Buddhist would, would work to produce these in his own life. Love in a, in a very different sense, but certainly joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The Buddhist would strive to produce these through a different means in his own life. So if I see those in his life, do I say, well, that's fruit of the Spirit? No. Neither is it a fruit of the Spirit if you define it and manufacture it in your own life. It must be being produced in your life by your union with Christ and the life of Christ bearing fruit in your life. You and I are branches. I don't have the root in myself. I'm not a root, branch, and flower, and fruit. I am a branch born into the vine who is Christ. So it is the life and sustenance of Christ flowing through my life, producing fruit to his own glory, divine in its origin and divine in its quality as well. That, I think, would seem to be what Paul is meaning in Galatians 5.25. In other words, we are not born again by the Spirit and then left to fleshly efforts to replicate the character of Christ. You see that in verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So there is no fleshly producing of fruit in our lives. And see, this is hard because as Christians, we want to be obedient. And as fleshly beings, what we prefer is give me a list of things that I need to do to achieve this status. And so we take a list like this and we say, okay, I'm going to work on love and joy and, and peace and long-suffering and all the, I'm going to work on those and, and, and hopefully they'll magnify and grow in my life and I'll glorify God through that. Well, your flesh is doing that. 
That's fleshly fruit. But the Christian who's walking by the Spirit has crucified the flesh in Christ Jesus. He is not operating out of the flesh. So why do we move from the new birth by the Spirit to to establishing now fruit in our life by the power of the flesh? I'm telling you that if the fruit in your life is manufactured from the strength of your own flesh, it is not fruit unto God at all. It is not divine and it does not distinguish you apart from the world. The world loves in its own way. So I want to look first of all at the first one of these, which is love. I mentioned Wednesday night about my fascination through the years. I realized that you could say this in a different way, but the singular, the contrast of the singular in regards to the fruit of the Spirit and the, and the plural in verse 19 in regards to the deeds of the flesh. Now I realize you could say, you could use the singular by saying uh, the fruit of the peach tree. Well, we understand when we say that there are a lot of peaches on a tree. But what it's tying to is the, is the unity of that fruit. You can literally say the fruit of the peach tree because you know that they're all going to be peaches. They're all consistent with what the tree is. The tree produces peaches. The fruit of the peach tree is the peach we understand that to be plural, and he could be saying it in this way. But I think it's, it's striking to me that he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and he goes through his whole list. So, so it seems to me that Paul is at least indicating here that the fruit of the Spirit is not, the, the fruits of the Spirit are not these things individually. The fruit of the Spirit are these things combined. These things interrelated to one another. There is a correlation between this. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning an order from from beginning, initial foundations to manifestations. There is an order displayed here. There is a fruit that is being born over time here. That is the divine operation of God through our union with Christ. So So it's literally one fruit. And we hear, see here, I think a, a, maybe a description or a, or a display of the characteristics of this fruit. The first of which he says in verse 22 is love. I spent a long time on that. Uh, that is, I think, first because it is foundational. It is foundational. If there is no love, there is no, there is no more fruit to be born. There's nothing... There's nothing that can be born of that without love. It is foundational. Jesus said that no greater love has this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. One of my favorite passages, 1 John 3, 1 and 2, see what, see what manner of the Father has for us, see what manner of the love the Father has for us that we would be called children of God. In 1 John as well, he simply says God is love. John's self-title for himself I've always been struck by, but John went all the way to the cross with Jesus. He beheld Jesus there dying for his sins. And John from that day forward always referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, enthralled with the love of God in Christ Jesus. Look over in Ephesians chapter 3 with me real quickly, just a couple of pages over. Listen to Paul's prayer here. Of all the things he could pray, Chapter 3, beginning of verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, listen to this, being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And that's not coincidental that in Galatians, he says here, the very first characteristic of this fruit of the Spirit is love. It's, it's critical. If you, don't, if you don't know that love, if, you've not, if you're not experiencing the love of God, if it is not the love of God flowing from the branch, from the vine into your life, then you're never going to produce anything in this list that follows you're not going to produce Christ-like love because you have no, you have no standard for it. You only have human love and fleshly love and the best you can do. Maybe it's familiar love or phileo love, but that's all you have because you have no reference points for the love of God. It is the foundation of the fruit of the Spirit, the love of God. Amazing to me to think of this. It is this love of God that is so critical to that. But notice here what I'm seeing as this progression. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. But then he says, joy. In John 15, at the very close of that chapter, Jesus says, I speak these things to you, talking about abiding in the Father's love as I've abided in the Father's love. If you abide in my love, you shall produce fruit. It is God is pleased that you bear much fruit, but he keeps on saying abiding in my love. And at the end of that passage of scripture, he says, I'm saying these things to you so that your joy may be full. You think that's coincidental? Because Paul says here, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Foundation. What does that produce? Joy. Jesus said it himself in John. Abide in my love, and I abide in the Father's love. Abide in me, and you shall produce fruit. In fact, if you're not abiding in me, you can't produce any fruit at all of your own. But if you are abiding in me and in my love, guess what will happen? My joy will be made full in you. Paul says here that the fruit of the Spirit is love as a foundation that lends itself now to joy. I love this. In Philippians chapter 4, I'll get to that in a moment, but joy leads somewhere as well. But it is the comprehension and experience of the divine love of God. It is the provocation now for our divine joy. So the fruit of the Spirit, by me abiding in Christ, is producing in me this awareness and comprehension of the massive, infinitely glorious love of God. And in realizing that, it is provoking now a divine joy, a divinely rooted joy in this life as a Christian. I don't get any indication in this passage or any of the supporting text that I'm to be manufacturing that. I need to be more joyful. I'm going to go out today and I'm going to be more joyful. I'm going to read the, all the right verses and remind myself of all I've got to be thankful for and I'm going to be joyful. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be trying to be joyful so hard that you're going to become miserable and the opposite of joyful. I mean, you go try telling an unbeliever with a crinkled face and a distressed look that I'm joyful, brother. Don't you realize it? He's going to say, you don't look joyful to me. It's because you're manufacturing joy as a, as a work now to accompany the grace of God in your new life. That is not what Paul is getting at here. 
No, we are united to Christ, sealed in Christ, where we draw, as it were, the life of Christ from the vine out into the branches. And it's the living in this love of God and the comprehension and overwhelming glory of it all that provokes or produces in us the second characteristic he gives here, joy. To me, that's amazing because I don't know that just by disposition, uh, I'm a... Uh, I'm, a divine, I'm a divine pessimist. Uh, I look around at men and I'm thinking, if it's up to them, this ain't going to go well. But thank God it's not up to them. There is a God in charge. There is a God who is exercising sovereignty. And based upon my confidence in that God, things will work out well in the end. And he will be glorified and I will be taken to him myself. So I'm an optimist in that sense, but a pessimist. But I don't know about you, but I, have, I am not able to produce a sustained and lasting joy in my life. I can't do it. Because it's so circumstantial. I can be joyful. Things are going well today. And the Lord is blessing. And I'm sailing along through life in this joyful experience. And all of a sudden, calamity or catastrophe strikes. And then I'm asking, where is the Lord? And all of a sudden, my joy is gone. I don't have any joy anymore. That's because most of that joy I was producing and working myself up into all the reasons I ought to be joyful. Rather than realizing that my joy was a product of the love of Christ flowing into my life. It was the produce of apprehending and be experiencing the great love of God by the Spirit, spiritually discerned and understood. So there is a joy there. I ask myself, if, this is, if I'm seeing a progression here, then what would naturally follow joy? Love being the foundation Joy, joy of the life of Christ flowing out into my life, the love of God in my life, provoking the divine joy or a joy in God in my life, a, a, a stabilized, enduring sort of joy. This is being produced now in my life. And what's the result of that? This is the Philippians passage that I love. But turn with me to that, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, when I, were, I, I remembered this text and I d- turned over there and the first words on the, on the text as my heart was exulting in this idea of joy being produced now by the love of God in my heart. Verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I love it. He says, again, I'm saying rejoice. Why? Why? Why is he adamant about us rejoicing in the Lord? He goes on another quality of the Spirit here, but the fruit of the Spirit. But he says, verse 5, Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then this passage, And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I don't think it's coincidental that Paul is building the case now or describing the quality or the character of the fruit of the Spirit. It is foundationally the love of God poured abroad in our hearts in our union with Christ. In that union, it is provoking now in us a a natural inclination to rejoice in God. And in the rejoicing and in the experience of the love of God comes peace now. 
The peace of God. Because we know God. We are loved by God. We are experiencing His love. And our hearts are exulting in this love of God. And we are joyful in God. And all of a sudden, all the troubles and the difficulties of the world find their proper place. I cannot be disturbed now as a fruit of the Spirit because peace follows in this order. Peace with God, but also peace within in relationship with God. Let me, let me just say this and insert this for, for, for application. I don't know what you may be going through right now. It may be some great crisis in your life. But would you, could, would you acknowledge to me that if you could comprehend and apprehend the fullness of the love of God on your behalf in your union with Christ... If, if you could apprehend and conceive of that to the degree that it began to turn your heart away from their troubles and began to realize the, the greatness we have in the love of God and the joy that would start bubbling up there, you might find that in a few moments of that contemplation, you would find that you are at peace within in the midst of hell. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. It's not just one fruit. Among many, among nine here, it is a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. That which is born from the life of Christ out through and in the life of the believer. His own experience and manifested in his life. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And these are characteristics of that sort of fruit. I say again, how are you going to produce that? Can you produce that? Are you so strong in your will and in your resolve to, to obey every mandate of Scripture that you can succeed in doing so to the point to where you can manufacture this reality in your life? And I would suggest to you, no, not without the abiding in Christ. That's why they are fruits of the Spirit. He has sealed you in Christ where, these li where this life flows and where this fruit gets produced. Try to produce the fruit of the Spirit apart from the Spirit. You can't. And try to produce it apart from union with Christ. And you can't either because it'll be a work of the flesh and no flesh will be justified before God. So when there is peace, this struck me again, but James encourages his believers, his, uh, his hearers in chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, to be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord, the difficulties and the challenges of the Christian life. So when we have when we are experiencing and apprehending, comprehending the love of God, when it is provoking now in our heart a joy in the Lord, whenever that brings stability and peace in the midst of trials and temptations and all sorts of chaos, what does that produce in us? Wouldn't that be the next in line patience? Anybody ever had patience that, weren't, that wasn't finding sustaining, enduring power in the blood of Christ and the person of Christ in relationship with Christ? Patience is part of the characteristic of the fruit that is born from the life of Christ. In fact, as I was thinking about all these, I was, I was, I was just going back through the life of Christ and thinking about how these had been manifested in the life of Christ. He wasn't manufacturing these things. He was in perfect union and relationship with the Father. I abide in the Father's love, and my Father loves me, and I love Him. I'm abiding in my Father's love. I leave you with you my joy. The world can't take it from you because it's mine. It's a divine joy rooted in the, in the unbroken fellowship of the, of, the, of the Godhead. All these things are manifested or displayed in the life of Christ. Why would we think that their production in our life should come from any less of a source than the same source? 
knowing the love of God, knowing the joy of God, knowing peace in the midst of these difficulties and trial of this world. This is what produces patience in us. Abiding in the love of Christ, filled with unshakable joy, at peace with God in heart and mind, true and confident patience is then made possible. If you don't have that, at best you're just making an effort at it, but it'll run out sooner or later. When things get tough enough and when the suffering gets bad enough, you'll run out of patience. On the other hand, however, unsure of God's love, distressed and without joy, disturbed and without rest, patience is impossible. The flesh is compelled to act in those moments and almost always hastily and wrongly, right? Impatience is born of not apprehending and comprehending the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Impatience is born of our absence of joy in our union with Christ, in relationship with Christ. Patience is, is excluded and made impossible when we don't have peace with God in the midst of circumstances. We can't be patient because if we don't act on our behalf, no one will. You see how patience naturally flows from this love, foundational, joy producing that, joy bringing about the peace of under God's understanding or understanding the peace of God and it surrounds our hearts and minds and that with our hearts and minds surrounded by the peace of God, we are no longer tossed to and fro about every chaos or distress that comes into life. We find that we are able to endure because we've been stabilized in the vine and our life is bearing fruit from the life of Christ himself. So there is a, seems to me to be a continuation in this. Essentially, this patience is an enduring, knowing the love of God, rejoicing always at peace in heart and mind. We endure the temporal trials assured of the Lord's final rescue or his purposes in our own lives. I couldn't help but think, but if I had all that right, kindness would be easy. And that's the next description he gives. Kindness. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You know, in the Old Testament, often the loving kindness of God, mercy is a, uh, translated in New American Standard, at least, as the loving kindness of God. And so there is a kindness involved here. Romans 2, 4, in fact, says your very, your very salvation is a result of the kindness of God. So kindness doesn't mean this idea that we don't speak truth and that there is no righteous standard in our lives. Certainly there should be as those who are bound in the root. But kindness is the, is the calm, the calm living out. The calm disposition of a Christian, confident and secure in his union with Christ, letting the life of Christ flow through his life, bringing about in his life this apprehension of, of love and joy and peace, and thereby he has no provocation to not be kind. He can be kind. Building upon what has gone before, love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness then becomes almost a natural progression. Not even our enemies can provoke a disregard in our hearts for the mercy of God that might come to them by our own experience. 
We're not returning evil for evil, for their evil against us cannot eternally harm us. We are grounded and rooted in Christ. And Paul says, oh, that you might know the height and depth and width and breadth of the love of God, of the love of Christ. Oh, that we might know that and joy might be filled in our hearts and we might have great peace in the midst of all sorts of turmoil, even in the face of our enemies. And even in the moment of their most vicious attack against us, we can return kindness return not evil for evil how do you love your enemies if it's not a fruit of the spirit it's not in me to love my enemies I want to fight back against my enemies and cease their harming of me I don't want to harm them but I, I would rather harm them than to receive harm from themselves well listen if we're not abiding in Christ and if this fruit of the spirit is not being produced in our life by the very life of Christ you're not going to manufacture that because somewhere along the way, there is a vicious, violent, radical enemy of yours that you will harm him before you dare let him harm you another day. That's divine kindness. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Where does mercy come from in the life of a believer? True mercy. True mercy. It comes from my, my apprehension. I can grant mercy to that person who sins against me because I am resting in Christ. I am, I am living, as it were, from the love of God, joyful in the fullness and the bounty of the love and grace of God, at peace with God and at peace in the world because I am secure in Christ and producing kindness in my life. Why not? Why wouldn't I extend him mercy? Why wouldn't he? He has no hold on me. His, his sins against me cannot rob me of the thing that is being produced in my life through Christ. Why wouldn't I render mercy towards him? No need for me to exact vengeance or justification. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I am in Christ. It is not mine to exact this vengeance, so I desire mercy. It is a fruit of the Spirit. I love the next one, but you see that unfolding and building upon these as, they, as you think of these in progression to a certain degree, then what would be the summary conclusion in regards to the life of the Christian who is abiding in Christ, knowing the love of God, rejoicing in that love, at peace within in heart and mind, kind? What would be the overall summary? Goodness. And I don't mean goodness in just a general sense, but goodness, this is the life of Christ, the goodness of Christ himself manifesting itself now as fruit in the believer's life. It is the goodness of Christ influencing now the believer and shaping the believer where he's not fiending some goodness or faking some goodness or not just good whenever anybody's watching, but the, the nature of his character is being transformed by the life of Christ through the Spirit flowing through him and the summary of the Christian's life and the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Goodness. You can see how these unfold from goodness. It went to faithfulness. And I thought you could probably do a sermon on every one of these and how they're related. But in this goodness, what is being manifest in the life of the believer as the life of Christ is flowing through him? Faithfulness. And I mean real faithfulness. I mean, faithfulness unto death. I don't mean fiend faithfulness. I don't mean the faithfulness that gets you to come to church on Sunday morning regularly. There are people who don't even know Christ who will do that out of mere tradition. I'm talking about fullness of faith. 
You, you come more and more to understand what Paul means when he says we walk by faith and not by sight. What guides our life and our thinking is the truth of God's word and not what I'm feeling at any given moment in my emotions. This is true. This is, by the, this is the way I will live my life. How can you say that so boldly? Because I know it's love. I've experienced the fullness of His love and it's produced in my heart this joy and I have peace now within even if the world is in chaos and I, have, I can be kind without reservation and I can experience all these things, the patience and, and the goodness of Christ is beginning to permeate in my life. So there is a goodness of character here. I think in some ways it was a summary of that but then it leads to this faithfulness if you say that you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then a part of the characteristics of that fruit is faithfulness. Are you faithful to the things of God, to the truth of God, to a relationship with God? Are you being faithful? That's a divine operation. It is the life of Christ flowing out into your life, producing faithfulness, not some self-discipline fleshly motivated power or, or determination to do what Jesus says. That's a work of the flesh. But is the Spirit producing these things? Faithfulness following gentleness. I love, I love that as well, this idea of gentleness. You know that the believer who is experiencing the, the Spirit of God or the, or the life of Christ flowing out into his own life, do you know that he doesn't have to be harsh? Ever. Ever. I mean, I might say to myself, well, I get quick-tempered quick sometimes, and I, most of the time I'm pretty good, but I can be harsh at times. Well, that... Your harshness is a fleshly work. There's no room in the life of the Christian who's experiencing these things in their full and the life of Christ. Harshness doesn't go with that. At the very minimum, when we're harsh, we ought to recognize, well, that's a work of the flesh. What do you do with the flesh? Well, Paul tells us in verse 24, you crucify it with Christ. You put it to death. It's no longer master over you. You're saved. You are born again in Christ. You are a new creation. You're not bound by that. So when you identify it, understand it's a work of the flesh and not a, a divine operation from the life of Christ flowing in the believer. So dispense with harshness. But what I love most is when this is true in my life, harshness no longer is even becomes an option in my mind. Even if, I, even, if, even if it's urgent or someone says it in a harsh way, I'm not, I'm not immediately bound to respond with harshness. I can even endure harshness and not be inclined to be harsh back. Which the upside of that, the other side of that would be perhaps the kindness that he's already mentioned. But this gentleness, gentleness. It's funny because even though I think of Christ in times being flame of fire and rebuking the religious leaders severely and, and other times calling children to himself. In all of those contexts, I never get the sense in reading that that Christ was anything but gentle there. Even in his firm rebuke, there is a certain divine gentleness involved in that. That is the fruit of the Spirit. It is to be characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Is there gentleness there? You can't produce that in your flesh, especially if you happen to be, by disposition, not inclined to be gentle. You may have to learn gentleness, but we learn it from Christ. And then the last one that he mentions here is self-control, which I think is fascinating because that kind of goes back to the very beginning of this. 
This, this ability to, to govern and to bring my body under subjection to the spirit, to the truth. And so this begins with the foundation of love. And as the spirit bears its fruit, the end of that whole progression there results in the Christian who is self-controlled now. By, by this union with Christ, he has discovered a greater joy and a greater satisfaction in his relationship with Christ. And now he is not subject to look for his satisfaction in the world. And he can dispense with all those things that are temptations in his life now because of his relationship with Christ. Because his life is literally being transformed by the love of God, the joy of the Lord and the peace and the patience and the kindness and all these things, this fruit of the Spirit being born in his life. And the results of that, ironically, is the disciplined Christian life. Now, think about this. What if I just got saved and you skipped over love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and just rushed me right to the end and say, Brother, you got to be self-controlled. You, what would I have done? I would have immediately began to beat myself into submission. I would have run out, found out what all the rules are, what are the expectations, and I would ruthlessly and out of sheer gratitude begin to get rid of those things in my life. But then I would find out later on that I'm not able to do this because every time I get this one out, this one creeps in. And there's something going on here that I'm unable to find this. And I'm now a miserable Christian because I am bound trying to fix everything in my life if you skip past this. But if you say to the new Christian who's experienced this new life, if you say to him like Paul says, you who are born by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? The obvious answer is no. You who walk by the, live by the Spirit also walk by the Spirit. Let this same Spirit uniting you, sealing you into Christ, let this same reality produce now the Christ life in you. Let it produce. So to me, it's real simple and it's helpful for me because I'm, not, I'm a simple man. But here's the remedy to my sanctification. Concentrate on my union with Christ. Yes, read his word. Yes, understand what the expectations and the demands of Christ are in the Christian life. But don't immediately jump to this idea that I have to produce these. But go back, go to our union with Christ and say, Oh God, this is not in me to, to walk in this level of obedience with joy. Transform my life. Let me draw deeply from the life of Christ. Let me sink my roots deeply into the vine who is Christ. And Lord, let the fruit of my life be manifest unto your glory, not to mine. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. And the sad thing is that when we bear flesh that is fruit, fleshly fruit, when the times get hard, it's going to rot on the vine. It's going to rot on the branch. Because it's not, it's not distinguished as divine. It is not the life of Christ manifesting itself through the life of the believer in that case. It is, it is the works of the flesh shoring itself up in its own confidence against, the, against the, the, the dreads of time only to fail when the heat gets on. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in that place. Again, verse 25, if we live then by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And Wednesday night, one of the, one of the applications I was trying to make here in the larger context of these Judaizers were coming to these Gentile Christians. 
And Paul said some pretty severe things because they were coming in. I said Wednesday, whether these were false professors trying to subvert the faith of the Gentiles or whether they were legitimately believers in Jesus who had such a tradition of their law that they wanted, they felt like something needed to be imposed beyond just trusting in Christ. So they brought in the idea of circumcision. You don't have to keep the whole law, but you do need to be circumcised. And what they were essentially doing was saying that you are saved by the grace. These Gentiles have began by the Spirit, but in fact, you are being perfected by the flesh. So add this to, to your perfection. And no wonder in that case that Paul pushed back and said, I wish those who were wanting you to mutilate your bodies would mutilate themselves. Can you understand why Paul would push back so hard against that? Because by doing that, he's introducing to them now a way of producing some outward fruit in their life that is not the fruit coming from Christ's life himself. Having begun by grace, are you now perfected by works? You and I as believers, we are saved by grace through faith. That is true. But if we're to produce works in our lives, if we're to produce the life of Christ in our lives, if we're to bear fruit unto the glory of God, it is by the very same grace. It is by remembering this union with Christ. It is by, it is by through the cross, crucifying self, get self and selfishness out of the way by the help of the Spirit, and more and more let the life of Christ flow through us. I want the joy of Christ. I don't want Larry's joy. I don't want the world's joy. I don't even want your joy. I want the joy of Christ to be full in my life. And I'm confident that if that's there, then something's going to get born of that, and that is peace. I'm not going to be in distress and in turmoil all the time. I have joy, and I know the love of the Lord. I have joy of the Lord. And if I have peace, then I can have patience because there is nothing that can come against me that can, that can rob me of this love and this joy of Christ. And all these things unfold as the fruit of the Spirit. Not as fruits, but all these combined. That's the fruit of the Spirit, and that's what the Christian is to be desiring. And there's only one place for that to be born, and that's through Christ. I'm convinced that Paul pushed back so hard against that because when you co-mingle anything with grace as a means of salvation, justification, or sanctification and glorification, you diminish, you diminish grace. Amen? And I don't know about you, but I'm not about to diminish grace ever for anyone or for any, any organization because I am saved by that very same grace. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you that you have not saved me so that I might be set out upon my own in the power of my flesh and all the strength that I can bear to live a life like Christ. In fact, Lord, I thank you that in Christ, the old man who was incapable of living any godly life was crucified and a new man made. And in this new man, the life of Christ flows. And Lord, I pray that every day, as Paul says, that we might be crucified to the old man and that the, the life of Christ might be manifest in our lives through the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, I pray especially this morning that those who are professing Christ might, as Paul prayed for us, know the love of Christ. Lord, I don't think there can anything else be born apart from our abiding in his love. And so I pray that that would be true in each of our lives. And Father, if that is in place, I am confident 
that we will see this progression and certainly we will see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as well. Not that we might pat ourselves on the back or glory, but that we might glory in the cross, that we might glory in the Christ who produces the fruit in our lives. In our moments of invitation, Father, have your way. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.